0: pray for the preached word to go forth our great god as we come to the the time of our worship lord where your word is proclaimed we pray god that you would use your ordinary means uh, to call lost sinners to yourself god we pray for pastor david lord we pray that you would give him the boldness to proclaim your word and that that your truth would be heard this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you're taking your seats, if you would, turn once again to Mark's Gospel. Uh, To Mark's Gospel in chapter 1. You might have thought last week that we were through with this text on the temptation of Christ. And I wanted to come back and, and address some other things out of this text. You know, it is, it is always the case that when I prepare a sermon that, that we could say there's a lot on the editing room floor that doesn't make it into the sermon. Uh, you you should be thankful for that, or we'd be here all day long just with sermons. But then also, there I had some a number of questions, that some really good questions that came in terms of, of application and, and what about kind of questions from the sermon last week. And so I wanted to come back and, and address uh, how temptation affects us as God's people. We dealt with, in the text of the scriptures from Mark chapter 1, the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and what were the theological implications, because what I argued was that The temptation of Christ is not given to us in the scriptures merely for us to try to imitate what he did. This is not for us, in a sense, to watch a few YouTube videos, as one brother said, watch a few YouTube videos on Taekwondo and then think we're a black belt at it, right? But we are to look to Christ as the one who has done these things on our behalf. He has identified with sinners and sufferers to such a degree that he is now our perfect, sinless, spotless high priest. And in that, that's where our true hope rests. But but there are still things that we wrestle with, aren't they? That doesn't mean, and Paul kind of anticipates this argument in in Romans 5 and 6, and he says, well then, does that mean we just sin all the more that grace would abound? And of course you know Paul's answer, right? May it never be. I mean, Paul is, is is this close to saying something really, really harsh. Because we cannot conclude that at all from the scripture. So we had this premise that temptation is universal. We all face temptations of, of various kinds. You may be tempted in one particular way that another brother is not, but we are all universally tempted faced with temptations from the world, from our own flesh, and from the devil himself. And and the failure in those temptations is often the cause of great discouragement to us, isn't it? Great doubts in our faith, maybe even fear. And when when we're faced with temptation, the conclusion from last week's sermon is this. When we're faced with temptation, if our focus is not upon Christ and his final, complete, sufficient victory then our fear, our shame, our doubt will continue. Or we just cover that up falsely and hypocritically. So today, under the title of The Temptation of Jesus and His People, I want to deal with two of three points and then there's still a third next week. So we're not even done with this text this week. So I want to tease out some things. And the first thing is, a definition of temptation. A definition of temptation. What, what do we mean? Because the word translated temptation in our English Bibles has a wide range of meaning. What do we mean? And secondly, are there distinct kinds of temptation? Should we make a distinction in temptations, or is every temptation the same? And then for next week, what is our duty? in temptation for those of you who like simple outlines accidentally this one was alliteration this time definition distinction and duty so let's think about how do we define temptation how do we define it this this word jesus was tempted by the devil here in mark chapter 1 and verse 12 it says the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This word can mean simply tested, or tried. In a sense of, of, is someone's faith genuine? Or how do we draw out those things, the sin that remains, and have that Purged away by the power of the Spirit. There is a legitimate sense in which that word can mean tested or tried. And that wonderful hymn that we, we like to sing, how firm a foundation. One of my favorite verses is When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only designed thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Dross is the impurity in the metal. And the Lord tests and tries his people, doesn't he? And, and you know this to be true. That is actually one of the, the things that you will see in, your, in the course of your life of sanctification, that God will bring you intentionally, deliberately through trials, and he is cleaning things off of you. He is purging the dross out of you. And so, that's a certainly a, a legitimate understanding of the word temptation, but it's not what is happening here in Mark chapter 1. And it's not what I want to, to deal with today with respect to temptation. What I want to deal with today is the specific com- concept of temptation to sin, or a temptation to violate God's word, or a temptation to violate natural law. Let's think about a definition. I often will turn to the old Webster's Dictionary. You can find it online, Webster's 1828. It's, it's interesting to see how words change over time, and often some of these kinds of definitions get softened over time. But Listen to Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Temptation is an enticement to evil by arguments, by flattery, or by the offer of some real or apparent good. You can relate to that, can't you? Temptation is an enticement to evil, either by arguments or by flattery or by the offer of some real or apparent good. Now we can illustrate this very easily from the Scriptures in a number of places, but let's start with the very first temptation recorded in the Scriptures. You know, Adam and Eve. When the serpent is described as being more crafty than all the other creatures in the garden, and he comes and he entices Eve... And then Adam to evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired in order to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So see, Satan flattered by means of or he he enticed by means of arguments, by means of flattery, and by means of a promise of some apparent good. Of course, as the Puritans said, Satan always gives the bait, but he hides the hook. So he concealed the evil and offered an apparent good. This is the way temptation works, isn't it? And, and again, this is a universal experience. I don't have to explain to you further than this. You know if, if you have been conscious and breathing very long at all, you know what it's like to deal with temptation. Even atheists understand this. They have some sense of their own morality, their own standing, their own description of what is right and wrong, and even they will be tempted at times to go against their own rules. But a question emerges, even from the definition, is all temptation the same? Is all temptation the same? Is there some distinction that ought to be made when we think about temptation? And especially when we consider the Bible's teaching that Jesus was tempted, and specifically that he was tempted in every respect as we are and yet without sin, is there a distinction that must be made between the kind of temptation that Jesus suffered and the kind of temptation that we suffer? is there some distinction that needs to be made? Do we need to make some differentiation between the sinless God-man being tempted and you and me being tempted? And and in Hebrews chapter 2, for example, beginning at verse 17, the Scriptures tell us this, Therefore he, this is Jesus, had to be made, listen to the phrase, like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So it is the case that we need to make a distinction from the scriptures between two kinds or two sources of temptation. And here's the distinction, inward and outward. Inward and outward. Our Lord's identification with sinners and sufferers was complete. It's genuine, it's real. And the Bible is very, very clear about the fact that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect but we have to be careful not to overstate the case. What, what do I mean by overstating the case? It's absolutely correct to Jesus to say that Jesus suffered, that he suffered temptation as a true, genuine human being. And that by doing so, he earned the right by identifying with his people to become our perfect and merciful high priest. But, and here's here's the but, here's the distinction. We should not conclude, therefore, that Jesus suffered temptation in exactly the same way that we do. If temptation makes him just like us, then we don't have a Savior. We don't have a sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Now, you may already be thinking, this is confusing. How do we solve this dilemma? If the Scriptures say, and say truly and clearly, that Jesus was made like us in every respect, and yet I've just told you that Jesus didn't suffer temptation in exactly the same way that you do, how do we reconcile that dilemma? Is, is the Scripture not true? Of course not. We can't say that. That's not the answer. How do we solve this dilemma? Because Jesus was tempted, and yet Jesus never sinned. And yet when we experience temptation, even if we flee from that temptation, is it the case that your conscience still will torment you or accuse you and, and, and convict you of wrongdoing, even if you flee from it? when someone offends you and you feel something rise up within you that we call anger. Even if it is the case that you don't strike your brother with either your tongue or your fist, you may still, justly, your conscience may still accuse you of some wrongdoing there. Is your conscience right to accuse you? And did Jesus experience temptation in exactly the same way the answer is no so how do we reconcile the dilemma well here we make the distinction between a temptation which is internal and a temptation which is external temptation that is internal versus one that is external there are two passages that will help us in making this distinction the first one is later on in hebrews in hebrews chapter four The the apostle here picks up the same theme that he initiated in chapter 2, where he said Jesus is made like his brothers in every respect. Here in Hebrews 4, I'm going to be beginning in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm going to address this passage a little bit more in a few moments in terms of some of the wrong conclusions that are drawn from it, but I'm going to read part of this again. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin now we, we need to understand the phrase without sin in two ways one is the outcome of the temptation did not produce sin in jesus so when satan for example came and said turn these stones into bread jesus resisted that temptation and did not sin by violating god's word But that is a correct way to understand that. But we also need to understand the phrase without sin to, to mean that his nature itself was sinless. Jesus had nothing within him provoking him to want to sin. Can you say that? I can't say that. None of us can say that, can we? None of us can say that when an external temptation has come, that there's nothing in us that wants to meet that temptation and indulge that temptation. There's another passage in James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Now this is one of those passages where we need to understand what the word temptation means, and here it doesn't mean tested or tried, it means tempted to sin. And so what what James says here is God, the divine person, cannot be tempted with evil. (laughs) It doesn't mean an external assault cannot come against the God-man, but there is nothing inside of him, nothing in his nature, even his human nature, which says, I want that sin. I want to yield to this temptation. But the second thing we notice is each person, now he's talking about you, he's talking about me, he says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. I don't think it's a coincidence here. James, the professional fisherman, uses two fishermen's words. Those of you who are fishermen, you will immediately recognize what these words signify. They were lured. They were enticed. I remember several years ago, um, I worked in the Dallas area, and I went by, I was at the bass pro shops during my lunch break or something and stopped in there for something that had this magnificent, huge aquarium. And it's all kinds of, of freshwater fish, including largemouth bass. And I remember being there one day when they were feeding them, and they threw the shad or the minnows or whatever, and all I could, I came away with that, I'm thankful these things are not bigger than they are, because it wouldn't be safe to swim in a lake. They're voracious predators, but they were lured, they were enticed, and their animal instinct just immediately went to the feeder fish that was thrown in. And James says, we are like that. We, we are lured, we are enticed by our own desires. Now, how do we reconcile this with the statement from Hebrews that Jesus can sympathize with us in our weakness because he has in every respect been tempted as we are and yet without sin? See, if we don't make the distinction between internal temptation and external temptation, we'll struggle with this. And, and, and I'm going to point out to you that this is a significant cultural problem right now even in reformed circles getting the interpretation of these texts wrong has caused no short man or no short amount of mischief even in reformed circles Jesus is the perfect god man he is truly god he's truly man he is in his his human nature and divine nature are joined inseparably without conversion without composition without confusion And yet Christ never experienced in his human flesh the kind of lusting against the spirit and the spirit lusting against his flesh that we experience. So for example, in Galatians 5, when Paul says, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, if you've been a Christian very long at all, you know this is true. It's true because it's in the Bible, certainly. But also, you've experienced this, haven't you? You you know that there are things that you've wanted to do as a Christian. You've wanted to pursue godliness, and yet your flesh is at war with that. Or in in Romans chapter 7, and Paul's speaking autobiographically. He's speaking as a believer, and in fact, as a mature believer. And he says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now ask yourself this, was that ever in any way true of Jesus Christ? No, absolutely not. N- not for a fraction of a second was that ever true. There was nothing in Jesus' flesh, even his human flesh, that desired sin. So you see this, how the distinction is shaping up. This distinction between inward temptation and external temptation. Jesus truly Genuinely experience temptation externally. But you and I experience temptation both externally and internally, don't we? As John Owen said, I quoted this last week, it's not in my notes, but he said that we experience, Jesus experienced the suffering kind of temptation, but we experience the sinning kind of temptation. There's a difference. Now, I say this is a major cultural issue because there is a movement or, or a series of movements right now, even in Reformed circles, with advocating a misuse of this idea of Christ being sinless in temptation and drawing wrong conclusions from that. And it's the promotion of the so-called gay Christian or homosexual Christian and saying those two things are compatible. So there, there are organizations like Revoice that started in 2018 at a Reformed PCA Presbyterian Church, it's been a series of conferences every year, and, and it's basically it's an attempt to reconcile same-sex attraction with biblical views on, on human sexuality that were held by all Christians of an orthodox flavor throughout history. And there's a faulting logic that goes something like this, Jesus never sinned, true statement, Jesus experienced temptation just like me. I'm I'm phrasing that intentionally. See, Because we've already made the distinction between internal and outward temptation. But Jesus experienced, according to the scriptures, if we press those words in a wooden way, Jesus experienced all kinds of temptation in every way just as we have and yet without sin. Therefore, the conclusion is, is that temptations in and of themselves... Disordered desires in and of themselves are not sin unless they are acted upon. That's the argument. In fact, the reasoning goes if I'm born with these desires, they are natural desires, therefore they are not sin. In fact, cannot be sin. That's the argument. Their conclusion, of course, contradicts the scriptures. In the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus, as the better Moses, as the true lawgiver, stands up and says, you have heard that it was said, if you commit murder, you are guilty. But I say to you, if you have anger in your heart against your brother, you're guilty of violating the sixth commandment. He goes on to say, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you are guilty of violating the seventh commandment. So their conclusion that those first motions of sin, that those desires towards sin, are not in and of themselves sin. And their conclusion is wrong. It contradicts the scriptures. But it also contradicts all, all of the Reformed confessions of faith. Here's how it's put in our confession. This is in the chapter, chapter 6, which is is of the fall. And in paragraphs 4 and 5, these are really short paragraphs, but I want to read them to you. In paragraph 4 in our confession, chapter 6, it says this, from this general corruption, we're talking about original sin, the sin inherited from Adam. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. Well, I can summarize that for you this way. We commit sin because we are sinners. All that we do comes out of a polluted well, polluted and stained by our original sin. We're born in that way. It is not the case that we become sinners because we do sinful things. We do those sinful things because of the sinful origin in our own hearts. That's why Jesus would say, that, all, that everything that comes out of a man is what defiles him, not what goes into a man. Then in paragraph 5, we put even a finer point on this. The corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated. So Christian, you still have a sinful nature. Your sins have been pardoned if you are in Christ. Your will has been renewed. You've been born again, and yet sin remains. And although it, the sinful nature, be pardoned through Christ and mortified, yet both itself, again, the sin nature, and, listen to the phrase, the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. Well, this, of course, is exactly what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. If you've harbored anger in your heart, you're guilty of murderous intent. And that is sin, truly and properly. If you've lusted in your heart, man or woman, you are guilty of sin, even if you didn't act upon it. So, when we reason from fallen man, this is just a general principle. When we reason from fallen man back up to God, we're always going to err. Every time. We are always, always, always wrong if we seek to reason from man to God. God is not like man. And it is true that Jesus assumed our human nature in the incarnation, but he did not assume our fallen condition in Adam. This also makes us think about a a biblical view of anthropology, a biblical doctrine of man. What, is, what does it mean? What's the essence of humanity? The essence of humanity is not sin. Adam was created in a state of innocency. So to say that Jesus was, assumed our human nature doesn't mean that he had to assume a fallen nature in order to be human. Does that make sense? He assumed a human nature that was sinless. Perfection of his deity, in fact, made it impossible that he could sin. If you read some of the older systematic theologies, you you might run across the term impeccability of Christ. And that means that not only was Christ sinless, but he could not sin. Because his human nature and his divine nature were inseparably joined, mysteriously joined... His human nature could not in any way defile his divine nature. The perfection of his deity made it impossible that his human nature could ever corrupt his divine nature. So it was impossible for Christ to sin. And yet, we can say that he is like us in every respect regarding our humanity. But again, sin is not native to our human condition. It's a result of the fall. And every man's sin sin, every woman's sin born in Adam is, inherits that sinful nature. But by God's design, it was not necessary for a human being to be sinful. Sin is not a necessary feature of humanity. In fact, we could say it like this Sin is a bug in the system, it's not a feature. Right? Sin is not a feature of humanity, it's a bug. It, it, it's, it's a corruption. It's a defilement that Christ has come to save. So a distinction has to be made when we think about temptation. We think about this internal and external temptations. We have to make those distinctions. Christ suffered a full range of external temptations. A full range of external temptations, as we do. But here's the difference: those external temptations were never once accompanied by a desire to fulfill those temptations. You can't say that. I can't say that. His, his, those external temptations were never accompanied by an internal allure or an enticement to sin that you and I experience every single day. So let's think about it. This is the hypothetical, but let's think about this. If you were somehow able, like a video editor, to be able to put together a 10-second snapshot of the best moment in your entire Christian life. Like you're you're putting together your own personal highlight reel, spiritually. If you could find the the best 10 seconds in your judgment, maybe it was a a particularly um, sweet time of worship. Maybe it was a a particularly intense season of prayer. Maybe it was a time of, of particularly... Magnanimous service on your part to someone else. Take your best 10 seconds. Now, in your video, watch that, in your mind, watch the video. Would you make the claim in those 10 seconds that you were without sin? This is your best one. I hope not. Because all that we do, even the best that we do, is stained by sin, isn't it? So, how is it then we can say we are tempted and yet without sin? Whether external or internal, how can we, as fallen creatures, say, temptation came, I kicked it to the curb, and I'm, I'm sinless there. You ready to make that claim? I'm not. This is not so with Jesus, though. His external temptations were not merely for purposes of illustration or, or to serve as a, as a contrast to us, Those temptations serve the purpose of perfecting Jesus. They serve the purpose of of giving him the right. He earned the right, according to his humanity, to be our perfect, sinless, spotless high priest. Back to Hebrews 2. The text says, for because, see we're seeing cause and effect, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is then able to help those who are being tempted. So it was necessary for you and for me for Christ to be tempted and to be tempted without the sinful nature that plagues us. In his systematic theology, Herman Bobbink makes a really insightful point here. He's speaking about this growth in Christ, even a moral growth in Christ, because Rome, Roman Catholics, and even many Lutherans teach that Jesus never grew morally. That at his conception, he was infused with a sufficient measure of grace that he never needed to mature. Now, we know physically he needed to mature. You know, We look at Adam. Adam was created as an adult male. But Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb, and his body grew in the ordinary way. And as we, Luke records some of, the, of just a few of his early childhood situations, including a, a, a vignette of him being a 12-year-old boy, traveling with his parents, he was growing and maturing, but without a sinful nature. Listen to Herman Bobbing. He says his divine and human consciousness were united in that he knew the Father's will perfectly, but not exhaustively. Jesus also grew morally, although he was not able to sin. His sinlessness had become manifest through response to temptation and struggle. In this too, Christ's humanity was more fully developed than Adam's. Now, this is what's fascinating. Think about this. He mentions he uses the phrase in the state of integrity. We we might say he is the state of innocence for Adam. But in the state of integrity, there was simply no occasion for many emotions such as anger. Sadness, pity, compassion, and so on. Think about that. Have you ever considered that? Before the fall, before sin entered the world, how had Adam known anything about anger? Or covetousness? Or, as Bobbing says, sadness, pity, compassion. But... He goes on, Christ did not just visit us with the inner movements of God's mercy, rather, in his human nature, he opened for us the abounding world of the mind and the heart that did not and could not yet exist in Adam. Now, what does this mean for you? It means that Christ entered into this world, entered into the full range of human emotions. Even those human emotions that in us come about as a product of sin. And yet in Christ, did Christ ever experience anger? Yes, without sin. Did Christ ever experience sorrow or grief? Yes, look at John 11 and see the scene outside of Lazarus's tomb. Jesus experienced sorrow and grief that Adam would never have known in his state of innocency, and yet without sin. This means, saints, that Christ is a more perfect Savior than we can even imagine. He is a more perfect human being than we can even conceive of. The perfections of Jesus as a human being, or as a human being surpassed anything Adam ever knew, even in his state of innocency. And, and through his temptations, Jesus demonstrates these perfections in such a way it frankly boggles our minds, doesn't it? And he demonstrated those perfections on your behalf, in your stead, if you are in Christ. His success, if you are in Christ, is your success. His victory over temptation, if you are in him, if you are united with him, it's it's your victory. When faced with temptation, again, we, we said this last week, if your focus is not upon Christ's victory, over temptation, then your fear, your shame, your doubt is either going to continue or you're going to hypocritically and falsely cover that up. But for those who are in Christ, his temptation is for you. His perfections are for you. His temptation was on your behalf and, and Jesus alone, because he did not have the sinful nature that you and I have, was able to endure, was able to be victorious in ways that we can't even conceive of. You and I don't even have a category in our minds to think about temptation coming to us without there being some accompanying inward motion that wants that thing. I mean, there are certainly things that one brother might be tempted, and you could say, well, I would never be tempted to that. Careful, you might be, number one. But even if that's true on one particular area, There's a countless number of other areas and categories in which the inward motions, those inward desires, would gladly meet that temptation. So do not place your hope in your ability or some hoped-for or imagined future ability to endure temptation or to avoid temptation. As we've seen together, the Bible's clear that we have duties, and we'll look at those in particular next week. I made the editorial decision even just this morning to say, well, the third point will wait till next week. There are duties, but before we think about duties, which are of necessity in the category of law, I want thoroughly to, to contemplate and meditate together upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished, because the law will not save us. There are duties, no doubt, and we'll see those next week, but that will never save us. That will never solve the problem of temptation. Our hope must not rest in our ability to obey the commandments of God. Our hope should never rest in our ability to endure temptation. Maybe to say it another way, the Bible gives us law regarding temptation. We are to, we'll see this next week. We're to prevent temptation. We're, we're, we're to prepare for it. We're, we're to endure it. But that law will never justify you. It will never save you. It will never sanctify you. The law is good, but it's not going to deliver you from temptation. We will see you next week. It's good to learn the scriptures, to immerse yourself in the scriptures, even to memorize the scriptures, to hide the scriptures in your heart that you might not sin against God. But you will never be a good enough scripture ninja or a scripture black belt to avoid temptation. Your hope doesn't rest there. It rests in the finished work of Christ alone. The grace, mercy, and power of God manifesting, manifested to us, revealed to us in the word Jesus Christ, that's our certain hope. That's our sufficient hope. That's our lasting hope. But here's the warning. If you are not in Christ, if you are outside of Christ, if you're here today, you, you, you can identify... If you're honest, you can identify with the the universal reality of temptation. Even if you reject God's word, you still have to fight temptation of some kind. What's your answer for that? If your answer is more willpower, or greater external defenses, or some other methodology, it's going to fail. And it's going to fail catastrophically and eternally. You deceive yourself thinking that you can define your own morality or satisfy the perfect, righteous standards of God. But the Bible offers to you, the Bible offers to all who will believe this, that there is an answer, there is a remedy for the problem of your temptation and for the problem of indwelling sin. And it's a substitute. It is one who's gone before you one who's gone on your behalf. And and the, the scripture says very clearly, if you will believe that, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Without exception. Become united to Christ so that his perfection is your perfection. Be united to Christ by faith because his word clearly teaches that if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I urge you to be reconciled to God through the one and only person who has ever endured temptation perfectly. Do not place your hope in your ability to get better at this to be more successful in this, That will never be the remedy. The remedy is Christ and Him crucified for you. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we, we thank You for the mercy that You have shown to us through Your sinless, spotless, perfect Son. Lord, will you help us, by your Spirit's power, to understand what the Scriptures teach to us about the nature of our mediator. About the the perfection of one mediator, of one Christ, with two perfect natures, one human and one divine, and yet one person. help us to avoid the irony of being tempted at this very point to reason our way back to the Godhead through means of our own sinful condition. Father, forgive us when we have thought of Christ as being sinfully tempted as we are. Help us to see that his sinlessness was not merely external, not merely in the response to temptation, but in the very way in which he experienced the temptation. Help us to be on guard for the errors of our own thinking, for the errors that are currently plaguing our, our culture. Your word clearly says that in the last days, that evil men will twist the scriptures after their own desires. Will you help us to discern the times, to see these things clearly in your word, and to exhort and encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Amen.